Yeah, a little disclaimer. I'm not going to be out there shaking hands or, or talking a whole lot today. I came down with something this morning. I've got a fever and stuff. So you're wondering, hey, why isn't he talking to me? Why is he being such a jerk today and stuff? It's a, I love you. We're going to do emotional long-distance hugs today and stuff and just uh, kind of do that. But uh, I'm not going to be at the door afterwards and stuff say, talking. I don't want to get you guys sick. And, and, uh, and so we're just going to go that way today. Um, I'm excited about our psalm we're preaching through today. I don't know if you've been keeping up kind of uh, where we are in this series. You've got the little bookmark and you kind of read ahead, but Psalm 139 is one of the most beautiful psalms. Are you catching this theme here? I, I seem to be saying that pretty much every week, but um, it really is just one of the most beautiful psalms that we're going to look at. And so uh, I'm going to invite you to stand. We're going to read this thing together, and then uh, we'll get into the preaching of God's word here together. But um, if you are new or first time in a while, uh, this is a series that we started a few weeks back on pre- praying through the Psalms, and so we're not looking necessarily at the prayers in the Psalms or even a whole series on prayer alone, but we are um, learning to pray in light of God's Word as they come up here. And so um, here's what he has to say. Keep in mind, this is a song, and so he starts off and he says, to the choir master, this is a Psalm of David, and he says, O Lord, you have searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar, You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I can't attain it. Where shall I go from your presence? Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. Even there, your hand shall lead me, and your right hand um, shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. For you formed my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows them so well. My frame wasn't hidden from you when I was made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, and in your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they are more than the sand. I awake, and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. Just hold on to that. We're going to come back around. And then he says, search me, O God. Know my heart. Try me. Know my thoughts. See if there's any grievous way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. Father, that is our prayer today, God. Would you search us? Would you know us? Father, would we know your thoughts, everything that's true about you and everything you know about us that we're not even aware of ourselves, God. And I pray, Lord, that it would rise up in praise. Father, I pray that uh, we would learn these things, that we would turn from our wicked ways, Lord, that we would be walking with you faithfully all the days of our life. Father, I pray that you would meet someone here today um, that is surrounded by darkness. Maybe they're saying that they're surrounded by darkness. They can't see the way out. They cannot see light. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would meet them right there and hold them by the hand. Lead them into safety, God, for the praise and glory of your name. And so, Lord, we give you our time. And we again, we thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen and amen. You guys can go ahead and take a seat. Um, like I said, I've just been devouring this psalm all week long. Um, it made me think... Um, about uh, a guy used to know many, many years ago back at the church we used to attend a long time before this. 
Uh, I don't know, do we have any huggers in the room? Uh, anybody, uh, we got some huggers in here. Anybody with a ministry of hugging, you're like, yeah, I'm like, yeah, this is, a, this is an endeavor of mine. I'm going to hug every human being I can find. Anybody kind of against it, you're like, give me my personal space. I need a little bit of room to breathe. Don't touch me. I'm a germaphobe, that kind of a deal. Um, and this song got me thinking about a, a man he used to know a long time ago. He, I, we always called him the hugger. And that's just kind of how we affectionately knew him. He was the guy at church that hugged every, every neck that was there, whether he knew you or not. It didn't matter. And so uh, there's a lot of times I, I personally don't, I love it. I, I'm an affectionate person anyway. So I'm like, hey, bring it on for the most part, right? You want, there's some boundaries there. And you're like, all right, not today, brother. I just need a little bit of space. But for the most part, I mean, there's this, I, I enjoy it. And so, uh, but there's some, definitely some times that you kind of avoid it. And um, I'll never forget, there was this, as I was reading this song, I was reminded of this. I, I walked into church one Sunday and, I don't know if you've ever had one of those Sundays where it was just, um, it was darkness, like it was just darkness, and um, things were crashing in around the family, things were crashing in personally, and I just walked in, and it was just a heavy Sunday morning, and I remember walking in and seeing him from across the hall and just being like, you know what, yeah, this is one, of, I need this, this is one of these days. I remember walking up to him, and I was like, brother, what's up, give me some of that love, and uh so he just comes out and just get the ministry of hugs, just kind of goes nuts on you right there. And so I was like, this is one of these days that I need. And the reason I was thinking about this is that I don't know what you came in here with today. Um, I don't know if you've ever been in desperate need of a hug from the Lord. If that is where you are today, Psalm 139 is for you. That's just what this is. I mean, if that is where you are and you've just been like, you know what, I, I, God, I don't, I don't know if anybody sees me. That's who... That's what, who Psalm 139 is for. And so I'm thinking of a lot of different people. Whenever I look at a psalm and, and think about, you know, what to preach about on a Sunday, I try to get faces in mind and, and pray for faces and stuff all throughout the week. And I'm thinking of the people that, um, I'm, I'm thinking of the people today that are, that are wondering if anybody sees them or if anybody would miss them if they weren't around. I'm thinking of the people that um, are dealing with a very, very heavy, dark season right now. They are surrounded by darkness, and depression has become their norm, and that's kind of the season that they are in. Uh, Tuesday this past week was, uh, was, um, it was the National uh, Suicide Prevention Day on Tuesday, and um, this is a, it's a personal matter for our family. Um, on Tuesday, we got the news that uh, a pastor um, out in California, this man who started uh, Jared Wilson, this man who started Anthem of Hope. I don't know if you guys follow the news and stuff on this. He started this ministry called Anthem of Hope, raising awareness for mental disorders, mental disability, and, and just things like depression, anxiety, severe, um, severe depression, suicidal thoughts. And he's been raising awareness for this thing. And on Tuesday, he ended up giving in and taking his life. Um, just gave into despair, left his wife and left his child behind. Young, young family, young, young family. Church, and I'm just thinking of this message, and I'm looking at Psalm 139 going, this, this, this psalm is for him. It's for, we, we know that this is a growing epidemic culturally around us, and that we're, we're seeing the stats, and we're seeing things take place. Um, even in Generation Z, we, we talk about this all the time, but like um, Gen Z, we're seeing suicide, the rate of suicide in Gen Z is twice that of any, any other generation today. Uh, we know that, that there's a thing called cutting that the students are engaging in all the time. They're, they're cutting themselves in order to feel the things that they're feeling inside physically to be able to, uh, to coincide with what they're experiencing emotionally. And they're cutting at rates that are just absolutely extreme. Um, and we know that bullying, and it's not just a one-on-one -on -one thing anymore. It's this online deal. Uh, Barna is calling it the uh, digital Babylon world that we're living in today. 
where a Babylon is not just a physical place anymore. It's, a, it's an online reality which we live in. And online, bullying is not just this face-to-face encounter. It's this online thing that the entire you know, internet, the entire world can engage in at any given time. Um, we know that 33% of all students between 13 and 18, they're estimating, are diagnosed with clinical depression, right? Just double that of two generations before them, by the way. I mean, just absolutely insane the things that we're seeing take place today. And the, the way, like, we know that this is a battle to hold on to who we actually are. Are we actually value, valuable? Are we actually loved in the middle of all these different kinds of things? And, and we know that it's also not just the young, younger generation. I remember a few years back, I was talking with, Dr., with Pastor Hal Habecker, who was the previous senior pastor here at this church. And he was just telling me, he's like, Aaron, this is not just the younger generation thing. This is taking place in the older generation. We're hitting the retirement years, coming, coming home, and no longer do we have a, a work to go to or a paycheck to make or a thing to provide for or anything like that. And we're sitting there kind of going, okay, what value do I bring to this anymore? My kids are, home, are away from the home. They're not as dependent on us anymore. They don't value or hold on to the things that we say anymore. I don't have that kind of authority. What kind of value do I have in this relationship? A lot of us are widows, and we don't have a person to come home to to love or to be loved by that person anymore. We're getting older in our years, and we're honestly wondering, do the younger generation, do they actually want us around? Do they want to listen? Do they value the wisdom that we bring to the table? Do they value our life experience? Or, or is it so different from what they're experiencing here today that we're just seen as irrelevant? And what he's saying is that it's not just a younger generation thing, but this is a thing that's, that's crippling the older generation. And what we know, this, this is a thing that's crippling all of us. And so the reality is, like, I don't know what you walked in here with today, but if you've ever come in here today, if you've ever walked in on a Sunday and you've just, you, you just needed a hug from the Lord, then I think that's what Psalm 139 is. I mean, the whole thing is a song about, about being fully known and fully seen all the time and still being fully loved. I mean, that, he's singing about this. He starts off with the song. It's all about the omniscience of God. It's all about um, the incommunicable qualities of God, these, these attributes of his that have no other likeness around us. These are the things that are true of God and God alone and not true of us or anything that we see around us. And he just goes off about the omniscience of God. He says in verse one, oh Lord, you've searched me and you've known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You, like, you search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O oh Lord, you know it all together. In other words, like before I speak the words out of my mouth, he knows what's about to come out. I mean, he, he knows the good, the bad, the ugly. He knows, he knows the bad language, the good language, the praises, the curses. Like he knows it before it comes out. That's exactly what he's saying right here. Like when I wake up and when I go to bed, like you already know what my, what my bedtime's gonna be. Like you're able to discern the thoughts in my head. In other words, it's not just the things that you've done. It's not just the external things that we can observe around each other and say, okay, I can see the different things that you're doing. He's going, no, 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 no. Like you know my thoughts. You know the things that are going on in my head, deep inside of my heart. Like you know those, those details that are all right there. You know my path and why I do the things that I do. I love the way Tozer said it. He said, if we could just understand the omniscience of God a little bit more, uh, it would cut down on our prayer time quite a bit because we wouldn't feel the need to explain so many things to him. In our prayers. You know what I'm talking about? We get in our prayers, we're like, okay, Lord, well, so our, you know, my sister, she's a real jerk, and you know, all these kinds of things, and, and she's sick, and the doctor says that we would just do this, and you, you, we're just explaining things. And he's just saying, if we would understand the omniscience of God, it would cut down on that so much. If we would just understand, he knows the things that we know already. He, he knows all the things that we know. He has this infinite wisdom. He has this infinite knowledge about him. 
Um, I love the way Tim Keller describes this. He says, a great way to think about it is kind of like three boats that are representing your past, your present, and your future. And they're on a winding river there, uh, and neither one of them are able to see each other. By the way, that's my artwork. Um, <laughs> I couldn't find a great picture of this to illustrate it all, so I was like, fine, I'll just draw it. And uh, yeah, I know you're like, is that Caleb's drawing? No, no, that was mine. Um, <laughs> I'm going to hang it on the fridge a little bit later on and stuff. But he says, it's a great way to think about this. It's like three boats, past, present, and future, on a winding river. Neither one of these boats, your past, present, or future, are able to see the other ones. Uh, neither, none of them are able to see the end of the river, what's ahead of them, or any of those kinds of things. Yet God and his omniscience is up on top, and he's able to see the entire picture at the exact same time. And he goes on and he said, that's part of the beauty of the incommunicable qualities of God, right? They are completely other than and they are only his. On top of that, his transcendence, because he is not limited to the same qualities and laws of nature that you and I are, since he's the one who authored them, uh, he's not bound by our time. Therefore, he's able to look at the entire picture and intervene in our past, in our present, in our future at any given time, so as to rearrange things in order to work all things together for our good, for the glory of those who love him. Uh, and so it, it's, it's enough to make your mind go crazy, right? Uh, we don't have words to describe the things that he knows, the things that he's capable of, the amount of power that he has, his presence, which is eternal and everywhere and persistent everywhere we go. It's why the psalmist in verse 5 is going to say, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It, it's so high, I can't even understand it. It's why he's praising him, right? He's, he's going, I don't even understand this, God. Like you could be, kind of like what we talked about last week, uh, your greatness is unsearchable to me. Your greatness is unsearchable. In other words, you could be revealing to me more and more of your greatness to me every single day, and you're never going to run out of brand new content. God, you can, you can show me more of what you know. You can show me more of who I actually am. You can show me more of who you are every single day. You can give me an encyclopedia of knowledge, God, and you're never going to run out of content for me to discover about your, your knowledge. It's that unsearchable, and it's that beautiful. That's how deep your knowledge of me goes. Church, it's beautiful, isn't it? Like there's a part of this just that makes us sit there and just wonder and awe and go, God, like how great you are. Oh, Lord, my God. When I, I mean, we just sing of the greatness of God, the things that he knows. And there's a part of this that is absolutely terrifying. God, you know everything about me. In other words, like all the things that I try to hide, they're not actually hidden. God, the things that I did, like those college years before that I thought were hidden, no YouTube, no cell phones, right? Ooh, you know them. Like every, everything about me, like there, there, there's nothing hidden, like my thoughts, you know, like I, I, those were mine and I thought I was doing pretty well to just put a little, you know, trap door on the mouth and not let them come out, but like you know, like the decrepit, horrific things that were going through my mind and in my heart all the days of my life. Like I, to, 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 to be known and to not know how that knowledge is gonna be used against you, that's a terrifying thought, is it not? I mean, think about this. Like, imagine if there was a TV series made of your life, and there was nothing edited out from the time that you were born. And it was available for all to see. It was on Netflix. Everybody subscribed, right? Everybody watches it. I mean, imagine if there's a TV series of your life. There is nothing edited out ever. Can you imagine how terrifying that would be for people to watch? Can you imagine if there's a movie made of your thought life, and it was out there? What's that thing going to be rated? Right? I mean, can you imagine if your undeleted search history was published for all to see? I mean, there's a, there's a the part of this is absolutely beautiful, makes you want to wonder and, and just, it just sing out in praise. And there's a part that makes you want to shrink I, and, just, and just be terrified. It's why he's going to say, verse 7, where shall I go from your spirit? Where should I go? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. 
I make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I take the wings of the morning or dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, you're there. In other words, church, like there's a part of me that wants to run from understanding that he has total and complete knowledge of every little bit of who I am. I mean, I mean, it's the same word that's used in Jonah when he wants to flee from the presence of God. The presence of God, it means his face. It's not just this abstract, um, it's not just this abstract presence that's kind of more like a gas or something like that. So it's, it, the, the word that he uses there is the, the face of God. That's what he's saying, I want to flee from the face of God. I mean, it's the same thing that Jonah tries to do. He tries to run from the presence of God. He's running because he hates his mission and doesn't want to engage his mission. But you remember how that works out for him, right? It doesn't work out well. It gets on a boat, tries to flee, God sends a storm. He tries to jump into the ocean to run further and try to end the whole thing, and God sends this giant fish. It just doesn't work, end well. I mean, it's exactly what he's saying here. Like, where can I go to run from your presence? Like, there's a part of me that's terrified by being exposed in this way and understand that you know everything about me. There are no more secrets here. There's a part of me that wants to hide. Like, where am I going to run from this thing? In verse 5, he says this. He says, you hem me in behind and before. Church, like, again, that, like, that can be great, for some, and absolutely terrifying for other people. Anybody have a newborn at home? Like the picture here is of being hemmed in, it's being swaddled as a child, right? Like that, that's the picture, you're being hemmed in, you're being swaddled as a child, is, is the language that he's using right here, right? That, that's good for some people, and it's terrible for others. You know this, even in children, uh, if you've got multiple of them, you're saying, okay, some babies, like, they want to stay in that swaddle forever, others, like, week two, they're trying to like jump out of their crib. They're saying, don't bound me, don't restrict me. Like, you're, you're cramping my style, bro. Like, back off. Like, there's, that, there's a part of us that sits there and says, hey, I want my independence and I want my freedom. Right? This is a good thing for some and it's terrifying for others. Good for babies, not so great for teenagers, grown adults, grown men, grown women who the entirety of their life, they've been trying to gain more and more freedom, more and more independence to the point that that has become one of the supreme values in their life. And so there's a part of here which says, hey, this is a beautiful thing worth singing about if I'm able to see myself as a baby in the breast of God who is infinite and awesome and majestic in all of his, in all of his deeds. Like if that's how I view myself as a baby in the, in the breast of God, like that is a beautiful thing to be hemmed in, to be swaddled by him, to be loved, to be kept warm, to be, loved, to be cared for in those ways. But like if that's not how you think and your goal what you've brought into your relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ is total and complete independence from him, any kind of authority in your life whatsoever, then an omniscient, omnipresent God is always going to feel suffocating to you, and it'll never be a source of joy that makes you sing. Church, why in the world would you sing praises to someone who's trying to steal authority from your life? Why in the world would you praise a God who's not actually on the throne in your life? Scott Peck, in his book, uh, People of the Lie, he talks about the rise of personal authority in culture today, where we want to become our own gods. We want to have total and absolute authority over our lives. And this idea of submission to anyone is completely gone today. But he illustrates it through this therapy session that he has. And he calls this girl um, Charlene. It's not her real name. He's not disclosing, you know, um, therapy sessions in his book or anything. But um, but he kind of tells the, the story of this, of this girl named Charlene, and basically she came to him because she's feeling very, very depressed. What's the meaning of life? I feel like I'm wandering aimlessly. I have no value, things of that nature, and um, she's just wandering and, um, and dealing with that. And so in the course of the conversation, he finds out she's a believer, supposedly, and uh, she used to teach Sunday school at her church. And she goes, okay, so you used to teach Sunday school at your church. So tell me this then, um, what is Christianity? What does the God of the Bible have to say about your purpose? 
And she just looks at him and she's like, well, I don't, I don't know that I really am a Christian. She's like, I believe in the idea of love. I like the idea of love. Jesus is great and all these things, but um, I don't really know about meaning of life. I don't know that I believe all that. And he goes, well, okay, well, you taught this and you did believe it at some point in time. So just go with me here. What does it actually say about the meaning of life, your purpose and, and value and things of that nature? And she goes, fine, fine, fine. I'll play your little game. And she just goes, the chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And she says it all sarcastically and kind of cuttingly and stuff like that. And he just looks at her. He's like, okay, so what, like, what do you do with it? Does that not do anything inside of your soul to say the chief end of man is to glorify God and to be able to enjoy him forever? And she just finally explodes in her response. And she goes, I can't do that. Like that, that is the worst purpose ever. I can't do that. And she just explodes. Like where's the room for me? Where's the room for me? Like, I want to live for me. What about me and my happiness? What about all the things that I want to do? She says, what about my goals? What about my dreams? I'm the one who needs to be fulfilled here, not God. Sex and the City picked up again on this um, in the late 2000s. We know how popular of a show that was, how popular of a movie this was, right? And, and it, it not only uh, described what was going on culturally, but in a lot of ways it kind of defined and amplified some of the things that we were already, already feeling and wanting to go to. But there's a scene in the movie uh, where Samantha is breaking up with her boyfriend at that time. And um, evidently, I, I think it was supposed to be this healthy or good relationship for her, but everybody's kind of wondering why she's breaking it off. And here's what she says. She says, I'm going to say the one thing that you're not supposed to say. Um, I love you, but I love myself more. I've been in a relationship with myself for 49 years, and that's who I want to pay attention to. Church, do you hear what we're saying more and more today? Me, 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 me. I want, I want this, this, me, me, me. That's what sociologists are calling the most powerful God in our culture today because like, we think that that's what it takes to find joy. But the irony is, of course, that it only leads to self-centered destruction the longer and longer that we engage in it. Meanwhile, David's right here and he is hemmed in by the hand of God and he's got things like joy and he's got satisfaction and he's got purpose because he is fully known and he's also fully seen and in the middle of that place he's also fully loved. I mean, it's why he's going to say in Psalm 16, he's going to say, in your presence, O Lord, is the fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Church, like when you know the one who hymns you in, I can promise you it changes everything. It changes everything. Look at verse 9. He's going to say, if I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand is going to do what? What's his hand do? It's going to lead me and your right hand shall hold me. Church, like that's what his hand does. It leads and it holds. And, and not talking like a chokehold or anything like that, right? We're not, that's not what he's talking about. He leads and he holds. Like the word that he uses there, it means that you hold on to something in such a way that it secures you to that thing, to the place where like you know, that person, that thing knows that it's actually yours. That's what he's talking about. He knows you and he sees you in a way so that he can meet you wherever you are, lead you out from that place in the fullness of his wisdom and hold you in such a way that you know that you're secure. So like that's how, the whole, that's how his hand operates. It's Psalm 23 when he sings and he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures, what? He leads me beside still waters. Church, he restores my soul. He leads me in the path of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you're with me. I can't get rid of you. I try to go to the top of the mountain, and they're like, you're there. I go down to Sheol, and you're there. Like, I try to go to a different city, and you're there. I try to go to the bottom of the ocean, like, you're, you're there. Like, you never leave me nor forsake me. It's like, that, that, that thing's actually true. I, I can't get rid of you. 
And so I'll fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they cover me. Church, like that's what he does with his knowledge and his presence. Like the reason that he's singing is because he knows the one who hymns him in. He knows the hand that draws him close. And he knows that his hand is not an iron fist of condemnation or suffocation. That it is an open hand that is there to lead you out and to hold you in. I'm telling you, church, like when you understand the one who hymns you in, it'll change everything about how you think about being close to him and him having authority and control over your life. I'm thinking of some dear friends of ours about 10 years ago. Um, I've shared a little bit of this in the past a long time ago, but uh, they were brand new to Dallas at the time, and they were easily going through one of the most difficult situations that I could possibly imagine. Um, They were new to Dallas. They uh, were not able to sell their old home. They were getting into a ministry job from a very, very affluent one previously. And uh, for the entire next year, they weren't able to sell their home, so they had two different mortgages. And we're kind of going, okay, Lord, I, well, the money's out. We, where are we, what are we going to do with that? And so I remember he, he kept coming to our prayer meetings. We're praying for he and his family in the transition, which is just going uh, terribly. Um, on top of that, for the past few years, they've just been battling with infertility. And they've been saying, okay, Lord, like we, we desperately want another child, God. And, and it's just been one failure, one mess up over and over and over again. They've been dealing with the pain and the despair of that. And we've been praying for that. And I'll never forget this one time he comes into the prayer meeting and just, he's just lit up with joy. And he's like, I've got something incredible to tell you. Like, we're, we're pregnant. We have no, I, how, we, it's amazing. We've been praying for this for years. And, and he's just so excited and so enthused by it. And we're re- rejoicing, praise God for this, right? And we're all celebrating with him at the same time. And a few months later, he comes back to the same prayer meeting. And he just wiped out and just, just destroyed, weeping, tears, the whole thing. We just got back from our doctor's appointment and come to find out um, we have twins, but uh, our twins are conjoined at the head and they're not going to live outside of the womb, meaning they're connected. And, um, and they just wept. He brought his wife with him and they just wept and staff, we just kind of came around and talked and prayed and just tried to comfort and everything. And, I, and I'm forever indebted for um, his wife and keeping this blog. She started blogging about one, from the day that they got that news and to um, sometime after the funeral and the burial afterwards, but she just blogged about the entire experience, and she wrote this in her journal one day. She says, to give you insight, um, I have a picture in my mind of where I am emotionally. It's from Psalm 23, verse 4. The Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'll fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I know that God never calls us to go somewhere that he's never been before, and I, I just imagine walking through the valley hand in hand with Jesus, Nothing is said, he just squeezes my hand, reminding me that he's walked this road before. And because he has, the valley is just what it says, the shadow of death. Because Christ has conquered death upon the cross, I know that my pain will be swallowed up in victory. Oh, what the resurrection means to me today. It has always been my hope, but it has taken on such a deeper shade of meaning for me now. It is not only my hope, but it is the hope for my little girls. I know that they will go not to death, but to abundant life, and it gives me great peace and great joy that they will be living the life that I look forward to living. Church, I just don't know what we do if we're resisting the hand that's there to hem you in. Like, I don't know where we go if we're sitting there kind of saying, no, 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 I've got, I, I'm, in, I'm good, I'm, I'm in control of my life. I, I, I don't need you in my life whatsoever. Like, I don't know what we're doing if we're resisting this hand that, 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 that wants to meet you in the middle of wherever you are, not with this iron fist of condemnation or this blanket of suffocation, but with an extended hand there to meet you where you are, to grab hold of it, to lead you out 
in the fullness of his wisdom in such a way to hold on to you that you know that you're secure. Like where, I don't know where you go if that's not our experience with him. I mean, even in the worst of depression and despair, like the psalmist is going there. Verse, verse 11, check out what he's saying. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. In other words, church, like even if I fall into depression and say, let the darkness cover me. That, that's what he's talking about. If, when, when darkness is totally surrounding me, when I can't see the sun, when I can't hold my head up today, when I can't see anything good around me, all I feel is my pain. All I can see is pain. All I can see is tragedy and despair. When everything is weighing me down and I can't see up from down or know any of those kinds of things, what does he say? He says, even the darkness isn't dark to you. Even the darkness isn't dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. In other words, he's got these night vision goggles on where that's not a problem for him. He's able to meet you in the middle of that place when you can't see anything else going on around you. It's not dark to him because he created the light. He knows the darkness. He's above and beyond all those kinds of things. He has these night vision goggles on that can meet you where you are, take you by the hand, lead you from that place, hold you in such a way that you know beyond a shadow of a doubt you're secure. Why does he know that? He, he keeps going. Verse 13, you formed my inward parts. Like you knit me together in my mother's womb. In other words, like the reason you're able to navigate this, this darkness is because you, like, you were there with me in the womb. There's no light in the womb. That's what he's saying. Like I, I, I know that you are there and I know you do this because like even in the womb, you were knitting me together. You created me there. Like you knew, you knew me before my parents even thought about me. Before they even had a name for me, they knew, you knew me. Church, it's why there's such value there. It's why there's life inside the womb. It's why believers fight for life all the time. Because before we even thought about it, he it knows us by name. He's knitting us together in our mother's womb. There's dignity. There's love. There's value that's going on there. I don't know if you've ever done any knitting lately. I uh, have not. Uh, I've heard that it's very difficult, that it takes time. It takes thought. It takes intentionality. You got to pick out the right colors. You got to figure out the design. And then, evidently, like you take it everywhere, like waiting rooms and church service and like women's ministry and stuff like that. It's like everywhere, right? And you do it for a long, long time because it takes time to build a masterpiece. Church, he, that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, You knew me in my mother's womb. It wasn't accidental. It wasn't incidental. There was not just a, hey, I'm going to bring you into this thing. I'm going to think about you. I'm going to bring you into existence, church. Like verse 14, he says, I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it so well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately, uniquely woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes, they saw my unformed substance in the middle of the time, like you knew me again when no one else knew me. In your book, here it is, were written every single one of my days, the days that were formed for, for me, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was one of them. In other words, church, like he actually has a plan for your life. Nothing about you is incidental. Nothing about you is an afterthought. Nothing about you is an accident or any of those things. He's numbered the days in your life. He's given them value. He's given you dignity. He's given you worth. He's given you beauty. And he's got this plan for your life that you should walk in every single day. That's why Paul's going to say we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for the purpose of good works, which he's already prepared in advance for all of us to work in. He says it in 1 Corinthians 12 and all throughout the epistles, right, that we, have, we are essential members of Christ's body, each with dignity, value, purpose, and planning there. I'll never forget going to Rwanda and the first mission trip I ever really went on. It was 2005. I was there, and, and, um, and I remember I was, I was feeling so insecure. I was about to go into these churches and start preaching, and I'd never preached a day in my life at that point in time. 
And uh, I'm coming in going, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to say. Like, this is a war-torn country. Massive genocide, over a million people killed in a 100-day period just 10 years previous. Like the devastation that, that was all in that country at that time was, was overwhelming. And I remember talking with this guy named Ronnie, who was one of the pastors there in Rwanda. And I said, Ronnie, what do I say to these people? Like, well, what, what, what am I supposed to say? And I'll never forget what he said. He says, look at them and tell them that they're loved by God and remind them that their life still has value. Remind them that they are not an afterthought. Remind them that they are seen by an almighty, holy God and that he created them on purpose and he has plans for their lives that are beautiful that they need to continue in every single day. Don't ever, 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 ever forget that. And he said that is a message that every single person on this planet needs to hear over and over again. Church, like when was the last time you woke up and you prayed and you said, okay, Lord, what, what is it today? What is it today? Like I know that this job isn't just incidental. I know it's not just about punching a time card or, or getting a paycheck or something. Like, what is it today? Who do you want me to interact with? Who do, you want me to, who do you want me to pray with? Who do you want me to encourage? Who do you want me to, to share a word of affirmation with? Who do you want me to challenge? Who do you want me to, like, call out? Who do you want me to invite into fellowship to take out to lunch? Who do you want me to serve today? Who do you want me to fight for that doesn't have a voice? Like, how, like, what is the purpose? Like, what do you have for me today? Like, honestly, when was the last time that we sat there and said, okay, today, this day is yours. God, let me listen. Let me receive. Let me be sensitive to your spirit's leading so that I would walk in exactly what you called me to to this day. Church, there's purpose here. There's plans. He knew you in your mother's womb. Like, how in the world do we read this and, like, not want to be hemmed in with that hand? Like, how in the world do we see these things and say, and not understand how deeply loved and valuable every single man, woman, and child in this world is? Like a little while ago, I built a, a 12-foot dining room table with Rich Roberts in our church. Like it's, it's sitting there in my dining room table today, in my house today, and literally everybody that comes over there, because I made that table, I'm so proud of it. I will show it to you. I'll, I'll tell you all about it and stuff. Like I, I go nuts about that table. Like it's, it's a table, church. Like it's wood. I just, it, it matters to me because I made it with my own hands. I mean, think about your own kids, right? You had a part in that. I promise you, none of you were there in the womb. None of you were there in the womb. None of you knew them before you even thought about them, right? Like, like there's so much that God knows that we don't know. What I'm trying to tell you is like if you've never known that you're loved or that you're valuable or that you've got purpose, it's all right here. He saw you. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He ordained your days and he called you to something powerful and beautiful and majestic that you would walk in, all, again, all for the praise and the glory of his name. It's a story of scripture from beginning to end. Like Genesis chapter 3, sin enters the picture, and boom, immediately the omniscience of God, the fact that God knows exactly what they did, it makes them want to run and hide. I'm terrified by what you know, God. Fellowship is broken. Like they immediately, the first thing they do, shame enters this picture, and the first thing they do is they run and they hide. And what does God do? He comes to them, and he meets them in their hiding. He goes to them. They don't want to be found. He goes to them, and he goes and he provides a temporary covering for them. And he makes them a promise that one day still future that there's going to be an heir of Eve that will provide the ultimate covering for sin. Because here it is, like even with the presence of sin, his love never goes away. I mean, Genesis, Exodus 13, the Israelites are fresh out of slavery. And it says that they're, they're wandering in the wilderness and it says that the Lord led them with a cloud by day and a pillar of fire at night. Because even in the difficulty and, and the uncertainty of the future, like his hand is a hand that will lead and hold you throughout those days to take you where you need to go. Hosea chapter 1, like God tells the prophet Hosea, and he says, Go take a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. 
Because even in spiritual adultery, and even in physical adultery, and even in all of our massive failures and the ways that we wander away, he wants us to know that he is a faithful God that will never leave us nor forsake us. I mean, it's, it's from beginning to end. Luke 15, it's the prodigal son. It's the prodigal son, and he gives us a story of, this, uh, of us, men, women, and children that run from their dad who loves them and says, Dad, I, I don't want fellowship with you. I don't want relationship with you, but I do want your money, and I want all your things, and I need this inheritance that I'm going to get one day, and I'm going to take it. I don't want you, but I want my stuff, so let me go and take it and run. And the father is waiting there, and he's waiting there year after year after year until his son comes home, and he sees his son walking down the street one day, and he runs to him, and he gives him his sandals, and he throws him a giant party because his son has finally come home. Church, he loves you. He loves you. There's value. There's dignity. You're, the, you're so much more than just a table. Like he knit you together in your mother's womb. I mean, it's there in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus, on the night of his betrayal, before the crucifixion, he's sitting there in agony and he's sweating blood because he knows everything that's about to happen. He knows the pain. He knows the betrayal. He knows the distance from the Father that he's going to feel as he takes the weight of the sin of the world on his shoulders. And he sweats in blood and pain and agony. And looking at that cross, he looks at it and church, here it is. He still says yes. He still says yes and he still goes to the cross knowing that you're going to walk away, knowing that you're going, to, you're going to be a hypocrite in our practice, knowing that your worship is not always going to be pure, knowing the things that you think about, knowing that the ways that you cheat, knowing the things that you've done that, were, that, that no one else knows, knowing the way that you think and the things that you feel, knowing everything about you, how decrepit the church would become, how broken things would be in America, how broken things would be in the Middle East and in China, and he still said yes to the cross. And he still said yes to you, and he still said yes to me, saying, I'm going to bring you into this world. I have plans for you. They're going to bring about your good and my glory at the exact same time. Church, how in the world do we read this and like not be overwhelmed with the sense that, oh my gosh, I'm fully known, I'm fully seen, and I'm still loved? How in the world do we read this and, that, and, and, and not let a song rise up inside of us just praising the goodness, the, 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 the majesty of Jesus in all of this? I was reading this story this past week from a lady named Mary Ann Bird. I didn't know evidently this, this story had circled in, in church circles for a long time. I just heard it this past week. Um, Mary Ann Bird is now a teacher. She is a um, motivational speaker and an author. Um, she was born with a cleft palate, all kinds of physical disabilities, a disfigured nose, lopsided teeth. She was deaf in one ear, and so she garbled her speech, couldn't really speak very well, and... Um, She's writing of her story, and she says, you know, from the time that I was a little child, very, very early on, I was fully convinced that no one would ever love me apart from my immediate family, and even that was in question. She goes, the reason I thought that is because everywhere I went, I was always looked at with disgust. People made fun of me. I was always bullied. I was always questioned. No one wanted to be my friend. I didn't have friends. I couldn't hang out with people. I couldn't talk with people. People didn't want to hug me or touch me or anything like that. And she goes, that was the thing that I battled the entirety of my life. And she goes, uh, she writes about the time that it all changed for her. And um, she says, uh, it was in second grade that everything began to change. And there was a teacher of hers named Mrs. Mrs. Leonard. And she goes, it was the time for our annual 
hearing test. And she goes, I hated the hearing test. We had to do it in kindergarten, first grade, preschool all the time. But she goes, I hated the hearing test because I was deaf in one ear and I was holding on to that. I didn't want other people to know that was another thing that was wrong with me. She goes, in fact, it was so bad that uh, when people asked me, hey, what's wrong with your teeth? What's wrong with your messed up nose? What's wrong with your, your lip and stuff like that? She goes, I was in a horrible car accident. And she goes, honestly, I would rather lie to them than tell them the truth because there's something, at least that way I could be a victim of something and get a little bit of sympathy and compassion. But she goes, it was the day of the, of, the, of the hearing test, and I was loathing this day because the teacher brings everybody up to the front, to the, to the front of the class, and uh, that person sits next to her desk, and uh, she whispers uh, something to that person, something like, you know, the sky is blue, or, you know, the ceiling is white, or whatever it may be. And she whispers it, and you have to repeat that back, and that's how the test is done. And she goes, I was terrified about what was going to take place that day. I didn't want to be embarrassed anymore, and and I didn't know what to do. And she goes, she writes in her book. She says, I waited there. Finally, it was my turn. She goes to the front and she goes, I waited there for those words that God must have put into her mouth. These seven words that changed my life. Miss Leonard said in her whisper, I wish you were my little girl. And she goes, I wasn't supposed to hear. Like She goes, I, I had my hand cupped so that I would be able to hear those words. And I immediately turned around to see if I heard that thing right. And she had tears in her eyes and she just said it again. I wish you were my little girl. She goes, it changed my life. To know that I was fully, I was fully known as everybody else knew me at that time. And to know that I was fully seen exactly as I actually was. And to know that in the middle of that place, I was still fully loved. It changed my life. From there, I gained the confidence to write a book, to become a teacher, to become a speaker, and to stand in front of other people that would judge me, make fun of me, and still try to motivate them and tell them that they too are loved. But that day changed my life. Church, some of us need to simply receive that you are loved in that way by God. I want to continue, and I want to show you kind of where this thing ends, because it's, it ends in a really interesting place. He says in verse 17 that the, the normal thing that I think we would all feel from understanding, hey, well, I'm fully known, I'm fully seen, and I'm still loved in this way. So he goes into praise, verse 17, and he just says, how precious to me are your thoughts, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I wake and I'm still with you. In other words, I'm praising you, God. I, I'm praising you because of the fact that I'm known and seen and still loved by you. And then it gets weird, verse 19. He says, oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred, and I count them my enemies. What's up with that? I think David is experiencing the freedom to be vulnerable before this kind of a God. I think that David is sitting there going, you know everything there is to know about me. You know the words that are about to come out of my mouth. Why hide? You, you know what I'm feeling even before I know what I'm feeling. Why would I hide those things? And somehow in the middle of that place, like you know everything that's real in me. You know the good, the bad, the ugly. I may as well bring it to the table. In the very next verse, he simply says, okay, he comes back down. And I'm imagining there's kind of long pauses in between these sections right here. And he comes back and he verbalizes, I hate these guys, kill them. They're coming after me. They're trying to kill me. They're trying to wipe out the Israelites. Just kill them. I hate them. They're, they're despising you. Then he slows down and he just comes back and he says, okay, but search me, oh God. And would you know my heart? 
Would you try me and would you know my thoughts? See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. In other words, Father, here's who I really am. Here's who I am. I hate him. I'm full of hatred right now. And maybe some of it's justified. They're in a time of war and there's, like, there's a lot of horrific things that are taking place there. But, but God, here's this thing that's taking place inside of me. And, and I think he's experiencing the vulnerability, the, the, the freedom to be real before a holy God who knows everything about you, who sees everything that you do and still loves you anyway. And he comes and he simply says, just search me, search me. Lead me in the way everlasting. Church, this kind of understanding that you are fully known and you are fully seen and still fully loved by God, it'll lead you to two things, praise and repentance. Because it's the kindness of God that'll lead you to repentance. The understanding of God is terrifying when you have no idea how it's going to be used against you. And the reality of the gospel is that while we were still sinners, Christ came and he died for you and for me. So I don't know if today you need to sing. Maybe you need to repent. Either way, my hope and my prayer is that simply that you would receive this. Maybe it's a hug from Jesus. Maybe it's a hug from God. And you would simply sit there and receive. This is what's true. In the middle of this fullness of knowledge, he still loves me. He still said yes. He still sees me. He'll never leave me. He'll never forsake me. That's how glorious and holy he is.